Well, the past few weeks, we have been looking at Paul's closing commands in the book of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, a number of different responsibilities and charges that he gives to the Thessalonian church. They are succinct, they are terse, as they come to us in rapid fire fashion, more forceful probably because of their brevity, but they describe for us the essential elements of a healthy church culture, a culture that fosters spiritual growth. And we've been taking time to unpack them to fully understand why Paul felt so compelled to list them out for us here. He understood, no doubt, that that if we embrace these commands, it creates an environment that leads to so many other spiritually beneficial activities. As William Hazlitt said, simplicity of character is the natural result of profound thought. And so the simplicity of these statements really kind of reflect the profundity of them. Each one of them is a doorway that if you take time to open them and walk through, you see entire areas of ministry that are behind each one of them. There are 14 total commands, imperatives here that Paul gives to us that outline for you and me the responsibilities that we have as individuals, in, as church members, to create a kind of culture that fosters spiritual growth. 14 responsibilities that contribute to that. And we began a few weeks ago looking at these, beginning in verse 12, looking at our responsibility to identify leaders according to their labors, not by title, not by position, but by how they serve among us. Secondly, your responsibility to esteem those leaders for their work, to hold them in high regard because of the importance of what they do, which kind of goes hand in hand with the third responsibility, which is to maintain peace among yourselves, to maintain peace not only with those leaders, but within the congregation itself, which doesn't necessarily mean appeasement. That's not what Paul means by peace, and that's obvious with the fourth responsibility when he tells us we have a responsibility to admonish the unruly or admonish the idle. The word basically speaks about someone who doesn't align themselves with um, the marching orders or align themselves, in this case, with God's word. They're undisciplined in that sense. And so we are not to appease such people. We are to admonish them. We're not to smooth things over and, and necessarily uh, keep all things um, uh, just delightful in their life. We are, at times, supposed to make things painful, uh, painfully obvious when they're not aligning with God's word. We also, in verse 14, we have responsibilities to encourage the faint-hearted, responsibility to help the weak, responsibility to be patient with everyone. Now, Paul's describing all this ministry for us in all these short, succinct ways, and, and probably, no doubt, because in the past, he had expanded on this with the church. He probably had familiarized them with all of these things because every one of them arise out of the teachings of Christ. You can coordinate every one of them with something from Christ's ministry, something from the way that he had uh, taught his disciples, the way he had taught on the Sermon on the Mount. And so Paul's unfolding each one of these, understanding that this is, this is necessary because ministry involves all 
kinds of challenges, all kinds of different people. And we have to be ready to shift gears in all the various contexts of ministry, recognizing that different people grow at different times of life and through different challenges with different solutions, whether it's a rebuke or an admonishment, encouragement, help in sharing their burdens or or uh, whatever it might be, coming alongside of them. All of these are going to require tremendous amounts of attentiveness and, as he says there in verse 14, tremendous amounts of patience. But that's what we have to do in the various contexts of ministry. It's not surprising, though, as Paul lays all that out, that his mind is drawn to the reality that that kind of ministry takes place externally only when certain realities are true internally. That that kind of ministry only can happen and flourish in an environment where you are tending not only to the needs of those outside of you, but you're tending to the needs of your own heart, your own soul. And so it should go without saying that a a culture that fosters spiritual growth, a, a church with those kinds of qualities, is a church that attends to its own heart issues. It it addresses those things on the inside. And that's really where Paul goes, beginning in verse 15, as he continues this list, but turns it very much inwardly or very much to your personal life. As he says in verse uh, 15, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks to God in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. These next four responsibilities really are the lifeblood of those those ones that were given to us in 12, 13, and 14. They are the, the internal attitudes that predicate that external ministry, uh, the ones that foster that kind of thing. And Paul is placing them here because he understands that they're really the key to maintaining this culture of growth. You you can put together all kinds of programs to help the weak and to encourage the faint-hearted. You can put together even processes to admonish the unruly. But if if you're not addressing these things regularly in the life of the church, then it's all going to crumble in on itself. And so Paul lays them out for us, beginning in verse 15 with a responsibility to refrain from retaliation or refrain from resentment. Or you might even say restrain the resentful as he gives a command really not so much to us but the way that we admonish and encourage one another. We are to encourage one another, be involved with one another to such an extent that we see that no one repays evil for evil. If we are counseling them, if they're engaging us with whatever their their thoughts are, and we see them moving in that direction of resentment and bitterness and retaliation, our job is to call them to account. There's no um, connecting particle here. There's no conjunction, but virtually everyone recognizes what Paul has in mind as he urges us in verse 14 to patience with everyone not just the weak and the faint-hearted, but even the unruly, we have to be patient with those who are difficult, with those who are challenging, those who are offensive, troublesome, argumentative, or whatever. 
We need to be patient with everyone. And a manifestation of that in verse 15 is that we see to it that no one repays evil for evil, but always seeks to do good. That's, that's really the practical outworking of this patience. And so we need to be alert to this in our own hearts and alert to this in the conversations that take place around us. We need to challenge ourselves and challenge others to be mindful that vengeance, if there is a need for it, belongs to the Lord. Our place is to trust Him, to trust the Lord with that. When you trust God, when you resist the impulse to return evil for evil, rather than bitterness and frustration filling your heart, what happens? Well, you have joy filling your heart. You have thanksgiving filling your heart. When you're in the midst of those situations and you feel that urge towards retaliation and you direct your trust to the Lord, what happens? You, you find yourself being drawn into prayer more and more, which is exactly what happens in verse 16, 17, and 18. As Paul tells us, don't return evil for evil, he immediately says, then rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. It all begins really with this idea of trusting the Lord with those challenging situations. Provided that we maintain that kind of a focus, we'll have the capacity to do exactly what Paul says here. And so these internal attitudes prepare you. They prepare you to give room to the Lord. They prepare you to put your trust in Him. They prepare you to free yourself up from the distractions of of protecting yourself, of being self-focused. They prepare you for, for being mindful of others because you've gotten your mind off of yourself. They prepare you for all of that, and thus they prepare you for ministry to others. They transform you from being essentially self-centered to being others oriented. And the first step of that is trusting the Lord, trusting in his goodness, trusting in his justice, seeing that you don't go out there trying to repay evil, strike back, retaliate with either not only either brutal uh, actions or more common with brutal words. And it doesn't matter whether it's really people outside the church or people inside the church. You're going to face the situations where you feel mistreated. You're going to face situations where you think you have been wronged in some way. You're going to face situations where you feel like you have been misrepresented in some way. And there's going to be a desire within your heart to want to make things right, take things into your own hands, repay someone for the perceived evil But the scripture tells us that payment or that repayment is to be left in God's hands, to recognize our place. We're not the ones who see the end from the beginning. We we don't know all of the plans that God has in every situation. We need to leave room in, in, in our lives, in our hearts and everything for God to do his works. So few Christians really understand this. And it's demonstrated again and again in their life. You put them in a tight situation. You put them into a a conflict. You put them into a place where they're offended. And they respond 
as if ultimately everything depends on them. They respond as if God maybe even doesn't exist or God is certainly not in control. They respond as if God is not powerful enough to do anything. In other words, they respond to conflict in a way that directly reflects how little faith they really have in God to respond to any of this. You might expect that from the world. The world responds to retaliation with discord, with fighting, with division, with all of that, with all the fruits of the flesh. You might expect them to respond that way since they have no hope beyond themselves. But you and I ought to be different. We ought to be marked by the characteristics of faith and trust in our God. And so throughout the Bible, God has always always called his people to this standard. Even in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Or Proverbs 20, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Or maybe the greatest example is just in the life of our Savior, who Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So until we arrive at that point where we understand the justice of God, till we arrive at that point where we learn to trust the sovereign power and purpose of God, we will always be at the place where we feel that we need to defend ourselves. We have to be those who rise above that and begin to put our faith in the goodness and justice of our God. This is, of course, a central plank in Jesus' own teaching. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone sues you and takes your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and the one, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Why? For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, when you look around you all the time, what do you see? You see the goodness of God poured out even on people who are unkind, who are rebellious, who are disrespectful to Him. Can you just imagine for a moment having all the power of God where you could in a moment squash anybody who showed you any level of disrespect? You have all of that power And you restrain yourself over and over again. Not only do you restrain yourself, what do you do? You pour out goodness to the very people who are thumbing their nose at you over and over and over again. And you've done so many kind things. You sent your son 
as a redeemer to be to be sacrificed on a cross and these very ones who have been so disrespectful to you, they're the ones who crucified him and what do you do? You still send your goodness. And so one of the ways that we prove our faith, one of the ways we prove our relationship to God, our, our sonship, our relationship as children of God, one of the ways that we prove that According to Jesus, according to Peter, according to the scripture all over, one of the ways we prove that is that we mimic God. We follow his example. Paul gives the same command in Romans 12 in more detail. Romans 12, do not repay evil for evil, verse 17. Or verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Or verse 21, overcome evil with good. God will take care of it. You got to leave room for that. You have to leave room. So few people can do that. They can't wait until they, almost until they get home. They can't wait till the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year. They can't leave room for God to do whatever he's going to do. They won't, they don't want to make room for that. They want to take matters into their own hands. They want to bring about as much pain, as much shame, as much suffering as they can in the life of the other person just to balance out what they feel like are the injustices. But Paul's saying you literally have to trust God with all of that. You say, well, oh, what's he going to do about it? How's he going to work all this stuff out? Well, I don't know. I can't answer that question. I don't know if he's going to let it ride for a while. I don't know if he's going to chasten them in a temporal fashion. I don't know if he's going to bring bodily affliction or or loss of temporal blessing. But you have to leave room for God to do whatever he's going to do in their life. You have to trust him with that. You ought to be mindful if you, if you want to think about what God should be doing to others. You ought to be mindful of how you want him to treat you. You can't be wishing on others what you wouldn't want for yourself. Paul says, by the way, it's not your place. You might say, well, okay, I understand that. I, 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 I think I can do that. Just sit tight and wait for God to take care of all that. But in the meantime... I just don't want to have anything to do with that person. That's fine. I'll let God take care of them, but I'm not going to, I'm certainly not going to have anything to do with them. I'm going to sit back, kind of like Jonah. I'm going to sit on a hill, find a little shade tree, and wait for the fire and brimstone to fall down on their head. I just can't wait. See, the problem is you don't have that option either. Because the scripture says, that not only are you not to repay evil for evil, but you are to do what? You're to do good. You're to do good. In fact, it's an interesting word when he says, seek to do good. It's the word for persecute. The word for seeking is the same word that we find in the New Testament for persecution. So sort of with the same intensity that that you might want to persecute that person, that driving 
angst and desire, all of that energy that you might direct towards retribution, you are to redirect that into doing good for that person. You are to, in the words of Paul in Romans, you are to overcome the evil with good. Or as he goes on to say, you are to, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He's, of course, quoting from the Proverbs there, a metaphor that really has to do with shame. That was uh, an image that's used outside of the Bible and, and even in the Scripture itself. It's used to talk about shame. You kind of heap the burning pangs of shame on their head. If they've mistreated you, or if done something ill against you, and they see you turning around and just showering them with goodness, you intensify the work of God in their conscience and, and provide the means through which God can work. That's probably what Paul's getting at whenever he says in Romans 12... 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Your acts of kindness are the very tools that God is working through in their hearts. And along the way, you're learning more about Christ. You're learning more about His graciousness and His goodness, reflecting on it even in your own life. You can't really do that if you allow bitterness to rise up in your heart. You can't really do that if you just sort of, uh, sort of restrain yourself from retaliation and then run off in your own corner or run even worse, you, you run down the street. You, don't, you just maybe just get out of Dodge. You just don't want to have anything to do with them, so you separate yourself from them, not only emotionally but physically, so you never have to see them again. Well, if you do that, you, you can't fulfill what Paul's talking about here. To show him kindness and friendliness. To trust that God's going to take care of all this in the end. You have to follow what Paul says here in Romans 12. Giving them basic needs, food, drink. Praying for them. Blessing them. Words of kindness. Words of support. Again, we're not talking about appeasement. We're not saying that you take whatever sinful actions are doing and, and encourage them in that. We're talking about outside of, of that kind of, of provision for their sin, you're looking for ways of kindness. Now, when you get this in your heart and mind, when you frame this up and you understand the character of God and, and what he's done in your life, when you have all of that in place, it opens up the door for what Paul tells us in verse 16, which is another responsibility that we have. And, and that is your responsibility to rejoice at all times. Rejoice always, as he says. Not just when circumstances are pleasant, not just when they're going your way, but even when you're mistreated, even when you're overwhelmed by your situation. You find your joy Apart from your circumstances, apart from your situation, you find your joy in the Lord. As John Stott says, this is not a generic call to, to happiness. This is an invitation to worship God 
in the midst of all circumstances, to always rejoice in the Lord, to sing for joy to the Lord. This was Paul's testimony. I love it in 2 Corinthians 6 when he's, he's giving a whole list of things there. And he says at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 6, he says, look, we didn't put a stumbling block in anyone's way when it came to the ministry, but we commended ourselves to every person. And then he gives a whole list of ways that he didn't put a stumbling block, but commended himself. And one of the ways that he describes his ministry and that of the apostles, he says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Do you know how hard it is to really have a meaningful impact in someone's life if you are just Eeyore all the time? I mean, you've been around those people, right? How are you doing? Yeah, well, you know, and they go on and give you their complaint about whatever. I mean, that is just not a ministry mindset. It's not a culture that fosters growth. I mean, you don't have to be the Energizer Bunny, but, but Paul's talking about a joy in the Lord that becomes infectious, that, it, that you are the person that brightens up the room when you come in. Because you're not just moping in the self-pity of however you've been mistreated or whatever your circumstances are. We've had so many saints like this through the years in our church. And and it seems like we hardly go by in an elders meeting. We're praying for various needs and saints in the church. And we're always bringing up those brothers and sisters who are in the worst circumstances and yet always have a joy about them. They always have a smile on their face and they're always asking about you. And it just energizes us as ministers of the gospel to go on ministering. This is what Paul says. Look, we didn't put a stumbling block in the way of ministry, but we commended ourselves, how? As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. People understand. They understand that you have difficult circumstances. They don't necessarily need to hear all the gory details. They understand it. But when they see you overcoming those circumstances with an infectious joy, it opens up avenues of ministry. You are not the sum component of your external circumstances. You're not, that's not who you are. Who you are is a child of the eternal God who has been placed here for the brief moments that you have on this earth to expend yourself for the sake of his cause, for the sake of his name. And as you, as you pour out yourself for him, you have your mind on eternity and all the riches that await you there and you are rejoicing in it all the time. So we're to rejoice having confidence that no matter what's going on, No matter how bad your situation is, God's working it all together for good, right? Romans chapter 8, you are more than a conqueror. Basically, you are a winner in every circumstance. And that's a cause for tremendous joy. Even if sometimes you're perplexed, you don't always understand the situation you've been placed in, in spite of all the things you don't know about what's happening to you and how it's going to turn out. One thing you do always know is that God is working all of it 
together for your good. The word there is actually synerge. We get synergism from it. Meaning that God is working so many circumstances and all the complexity of your life, working them together in a way that you couldn't begin to fathom and understand, but he's working them all together in a way that's going to ultimately result in your benefit, your good, your growth. Kind of like Joseph when he rejoined his brothers after being sent away by them because of their jealousy, because of their cruelty. He comes back to them and he, he greets them. They are, they are shying away out of shame, out of fear. And he's able to say, well, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God worked even through that terrible situation. God worked in my life, in my heart, and and now through all of us, working through multiple things, his united purpose. It's not as if these things are working on their own, but God is in control. Another way to say this is nothing can work against you. Nothing. Nothing. No, you, you might think that, well, listen, I'm going to give you a laundry list of things that are against me. I got this situation against me. I got that situation against me. I got this medical issue over here. I got this financial issue over here. I got this relational issue. They're all working against me. No, they're not. They're actually all working together for your good. That's what the scripture tells us. And when you realize that, when you get a hold of that, then everything turns into an opportunity for joy. Count it all joy, James says, when you fall into various trials. Or the psalmist, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It was good for me, he says, that I was afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you afflicted me. This is the attitude that begins to come into your heart. You know, God, thank you for this circumstance. Thank you. And you have confidence that he's working it all together for your good, counting it all joy. Now that assumes, really, Paul's next command, the 10th responsibility that you and I have for creating this culture of spiritual growth. And when you get this in your heart and mind, you begin to see uh, what God is doing in all this. You, you feel your responsibility, verse 17, to pray without ceasing. That's the command, pray without ceasing. Seems easy enough to understand This is a call to recurring, frequent prayer. Not that you are just giving unbroken verbal, you know, uh, dialogue, verbal uh, uh, um, prayers back to God. He's not talking about that, that you go off in the corner and do nothing else but mouth prayers to God. That's not what unceasing is talking about. But as Paul said back in chapter 2, how he, he gave thanks to God unceasingly for them. And he says it in the midst of, of a a context where he says he was also working night and day with his own hands. He was working as a tent maker. But he was able to do all that and give unceasing, unbroken thanksgiving to God. Well, this is the kind of prayer that Paul's talking about here. The kind of prayer that is 
frequent, that is repeatedly punctuating your day all the time, a prayer we might say in all circumstances. Because too often, for too many of you, prayer is the one thing that gets pushed out of your life too quickly. It gets pushed out of your life during good times, during times of blessing, because you lose touch, you lose sense of how much you need God, and so you're not crying out to Him until you're blindsided by some catastrophe that you weren't really anticipating. Then suddenly, your withered spiritual life is exposed, and you try to start rebuilding your prayer life. Or you let prayer get pushed out because you're just busy. And you're fighting and swimming and all kinds of stuff. And you're taking it all on without any sense that God wants to work through all of it. Maybe you feel like it's not spiritual enough. It's just, it's just punching out things on a keyboard or, or meeting people in a shop or whatever. And, you, and you're not thinking about how God wants to work through all that. So you're not praying about it at all. And prayer gets pushed out of your life because you're just busy. Or prayer can get pushed out of your life because you've been hurt. You've got some grievance. And you get so focused on retaliation or slander or gossip and your prayers begin to dry up because you can't take that kind of a bitter heart before the Lord for very much. And, and your prayers become maybe routine or, or just token prayers. You, may, you might offer up at a meal. But the real issues that are dominating your heart and mind, you wouldn't dare take those to God because you know you'd get exposed. And so prayer gets pushed out of your life. And then before long... You're not praying that much, and honestly, you're not rejoicing. You're not able to rejoice. People bring up situations in your life, they don't hear joy, they hear bitterness. They hear distrust, they hear complaint. Once again, this is grounded in the Lord's teaching. Luke 18, Jesus taught his disciples to to pray at all times and not lose heart, and he gives them an illustration about a widow who's going before an unjust judge and crying with a complaint and the judge won't hear her. He won't listen to her pleas. And then the Lord says to his disciples, Luke 18, 7, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Those times when you feel like you're facing either injustice or overwhelming circumstances or whatever it might be. Those would be the times when you ought to be praying the most and yet prayer gets pushed out. Let the Lord fill your heart with prayer. You remember this in in the book of Colossians. This is Paul's, excuse me, the book of Philippians. This was Paul's admonition to the church and really to a couple, of, a couple of ladies. He says in Philippians 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is, this is the same thing Paul brings together for us right here in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, trust the Lord, rejoice at all times, be unceasing in prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, which he gives us there in verse 18. And it's our next, next uh, commandment, next responsibility in this culture of, of spiritual growth that we're trying to create. And that is the mandate to give thanks in all circumstances. The responsibility to give thanks in all circumstances. Thanking God for how he's working even through your challenges. He's drawing you closer to himself. He's, he's teaching you more about his character. He's teaching you about his suffering. He's helping you understand your weaknesses that, in ways that you had never seen before. And through all of that, he's granting you maturity and endurance and he's building your faith. And so you're not just bearing up stoically under all this difficulty. You're actually tracing out all the blessings through it to the point that you are reaching out to others who might even be trying to agitate you and frustrate you. You're reaching out to them and you're just sharing the goodness that you are so overwhelmed with in your life because you're giving thanks. You're just, you're just overwhelmed with the goodness of God. You don't have time to be bitter. You reach the point where Paul said he was when he was able to actually boast in these kinds of afflictions and weaknesses. It's mind-boggling. 2 Corinthians 10, he says, For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, and with calamities. He's a content person. He was content with those things. Why? He says, for when I'm weak, I'm strong. What, what, is an, what an undefeatable attitude right there. You cannot defeat the person who says, when I'm weak, I'm strong. You knock them down, they say, thank you, right? Right? This is where Paul had reached. He says, I'm content with that. You actually, you actually bring someone in my life who's a thorn in my flesh, they're actually helping me. So this is what made Paul such a useful minister. This is what made Paul such a useful minister. He was so unfocused on himself. He was so unfocused on himself so ready that he could be sent into the most difficult circumstances because in the midst of it all, he would continue to rejoice, continue to pray, continue to give thanks, and continue to do good. No matter where you sent him. You could put him anywhere. So many times you have to... You have to Sit back and you have to calculate, you know, if I, if I kind of, if I entrust that ministry to that person, how much blowback, how much, how much time am I going to have to spend working them through all the self-pity and, and all of the 
grumbling and complaining so that they could actually be productive where they are. What a joy it is to know that you have some people and some ministers that you can just send them wherever you can send them and you know they're going to minister there. I remember one time having to make a, a difficult decision in a short period of time and I didn't have time to kind of go around and, and chat with everybody. I just kind of looked at a, a range of people and made a decision I was going to pull someone out of one position and put someone else in there. And um, I was talking to that person later. They were startled, maybe, maybe a little bit tempted to being upset. And they're like, why did you do that? I said, because I knew I could trust you with it. It was a reflection on their spiritual maturity. The fact that they could just be pulled out and put back in somewhere else was a reflection on their spiritual maturity. That's what makes a culture of spiritual growth. That's what fosters a, a community that's, that's ready to flourish spiritually. When you have a, a group of people who have these kinds of attitudes, this kind of a heart, who are well content with whatever circumstances come their way, and they just continue to give goodness They just continue to be thankful. They just continue to rejoice. They just stay constantly close to the Lord, praying to Him. Then you have a place that is transformed from self-centered to others-centered. You have a place now where you can be sure that the faint-hearted and the weak and the unruly and everything else that comes along with ministry, that those people are going to get ministered to. You have a place that's transformed from a bunch of of folks who are draining on resources to those who are overflowing with resources to give to others. Focused on prayer. Focused on joyful thanksgiving. Focused on doing good. Ready to minister. Because they're basically Godward in their focus all the time. People like that, they cultivate spiritual growth. They create an environment where it takes place all around them. Well, four more important qualities that create a culture of spiritual growth, and we'll get to those more next week. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for these reminders. They rebuke us. They expose us. But they also direct us. They bring us to a place where we need to be. Lord, would you forgive us where we have not followed faithfully? We all have given way to self-pity. We all have given way to gloominess. We've all given in to our circumstances. But Lord, we want to repent today. We want to offer up ourselves to you again. We want to be those who rise in the morning giving thanks, who go to bed in the evening spreading it around. Help us to fill our hearts with joy in the Lord. Help us to be so focused on you and on eternity that we don't have time to be drained by whatever circumstances are around us. And give us a heart to pour out ourselves for the sake of your name. Because that's what we see in our Savior. We want to be like him. Help us to follow his example. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.